This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, home to more than 100,000 titles, including great science works. For Scientific American podcast listeners, Audible recommends A Short History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson and The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality by Richard Panic. Audible is giving away a free audiobook just for checking them out. You can sign up for a one-month trial membership and the freebie at audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. That's audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on April 30th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... But it's just chance, and you would expect that truly large numbers of opportunities for this sort of thing to happen. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. That's David J. Hand. He is Senior Research Investigator and Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Imperial College London, where he was the Chair in Statistics. He is also a Fellow of the British Academy and an Honorary Fellow of the Institute of Actuaries. He has served twice as President of the Royal Statistical Society. In 2002, he was awarded the Guy Medal of the Royal Statistical Society. He is good with numbers. David J. Hand is also the author of the new book for a general audience called The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day. He was visiting New York recently, not coincidentally, and we got together to talk about the book. I was nine years old. It was July of 1967. I know this because I just double-checked it. Yeah. And I took some spoken word records out of the library. One was Carl Sandburg reading his own poetry, mm-hmm. and one was Basil Rathbone reading Sherlock Holmes. A couple of days after I took the records out, Basil Rathbone died. The next day, Carl Sandburg died. Yeah, yeah. So I was nine years old, and yeah. <laughs> I was a little concerned about my <laughs> what special <laughs> ability. <laughs> but uh, what what was really going on there? Yeah, it was just one of those <laughs> very unfortunate events. There would be doubtless similar sort of situations at other times and many other times in your life. You've read a particular author, a particular column written by somebody or so, and they didn't die. So you didn't notice. Right. Um, you know, these happened to, and it naturally focused your attention on it. And uh, yes, <laughs> led you to think you had superpowers, yes. Yes, unfortunate superpowers. I was yes. a little little concerned about taking any more records out of library, but I gradually got over it. So the improbability principle, this is a, a very readable, entertaining, and engrossing book. Thank you. And why don't we go through it a little bit and talk about some of the ways in which events that just seem to be too unbelievable to yeah. believe they could have just happened without some yeah. higher purpose or or a direction to the events of the world, yeah. how these things just happen willy-nilly. Yeah. So uh, you have various laws in the book that you discuss. For yeah. example, the law of inevitability. Yes, indeed. So there are five laws. The law of inevitability, inevitability is the first one. And in a way, it's the sort of most elementary. And when I tell you what it is, you'll think, well, that's obvious, isn't it? How can That's not very profound. How can that have any implications? But as we'll see, it does. The the law of inevitability just basically says that something must happen. One of the many, one of all of the possible outcomes must occur. It's guaranteed. So I can guarantee you that 
a flipped coin will come up heads or tails or something else. It will fall down a crack in the floor or a bird, passing bird will take it or something like that. So we have three possibilities. Heads or tails or other, all these other strange things might happen to it. They're guaranteed. One or the other of those three things is certain to happen. I can't tell you beforehand which one it will be, but one of those is certain to happen. Um, now, this appears to be trivial, but it's not. Exactly. It appears to be trivial, but you can, in fact, take advantage of it. And um, there's a story in the book, uh, a story about uh, people who took advantage, tried to, and in fact succeeded, uh, of taking advantage of the law of inevitability to win the lottery. And it's not the only group who've, it was a group of people. Uh, this is where there were seven million possible. Exactly, exactly. Possible but, combinations. That's yeah. right. But other groups have done the same. Yeah. This is a particular, uh, particularly well-known classic story. 1992, um, Virginia State Lottery. Um, the Virginia State Lottery is a 644 lottery. You have to choose six numbers out of 44, which means exactly as you say, there's a one in seven million chance that a ticket, particular ticket will be, hold, be the jackpot winning ticket. Seven million. So if you, if you bought all the tickets, it would only cost you seven million dollars. They waited. I mean, they'd obviously planned this. As we'll see, it takes a lot of planning. They planned this well in advance. They waited until the rollover jackpot had built up to, hadn't been won, so it built up over several weeks to $27 million. So there was a window there between the jackpot rolling over and and a jackpot of $27 million being paid at the next draw. If you manage to spend $7 million and buy all the $7 million tickets, you are guaranteed to hold the jackpot winning ticket. For a $20 million profit. Exactly. Assuming no one else had the <laughs> same exact numbers and you'd have to split it. But even if you did have to split it, you'd still be yeah. ahead $6.5 million. That's right. If you split it two ways, that's fine. Right. If you split Three it many ways, yeah. still, but now, <laughs> yeah. now it's not so worth yeah. it anyway. Yeah. But there's a lot of organization involved in this. In fact, what, what happened was they put together a consortium of 2,500 people, uh, Australians, Americans, and other nationalities as well. So a lot of organization, each of whom paid $3,000 thereabouts, so they had $7 million. And then in the few days window they had available, they ran around buying, trying to buy, <laughs> all the 7 million tickets. Unfortunately, they only managed to buy five million of them. Right, you so can remember, the, <laughs> imagine the sinking feeling in their, in their stomachs. When White they, knuckle yeah, at the yeah, drawing, although yeah. now their chances are excellent of winning. They're five out of seven. Yeah, and they have over a quarter of a chance of not winning. Right. Previously, it was the law of inevitability. They were certain to win, but because of their failure of their organization, they had a good chance of losing now. Um, as it happened, however, they did have the, the, the winning uh, ticket, so they were guaranteed winning the jackpot. Except for the fact that the lottery operators um, pointed out a clause in the regulations, which said that they had to buy the tickets, receive the tickets at the same place they paid for them. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't done this; they paid bulk, you know, a check for a hundred thousand dollars in one place, and then printed the tickets out in other right. places. Um, but eventually, a, yeah, a th this then rich. went into a sort of legal argument, and eventually the lottery operators realized it was getting too complicated, no guaranteed outcome, they gave them the money. Right. But the organization beforehand, the logistics of running around trying to buy these tickets, the nail biting, looking through the ticket, it's easier if just to get a job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Some friends and I, when I was in high school, tried a, a very modest version of this. We were at the track, and we you know, you can do the bets where you have two horses. Yeah, yeah. And we, I think it's called boxing. 
uh, we box the entire field, ah. figuring that if a long shot comes in, we'll make a profit. And if favorites come in, we'll lose, but not too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we tried that for a, a, a few uh, a few of the races during that evening's uh, events, and what we wound up with was uh, basically breaking even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you always have to remember in these circumstances that um, bookmakers, betting operators, <laughs> you, don't, you don't, as I say, you don't see them riding bicycles. Right. <laughs> I had to think about that, and then ah. I realized what it meant was yeah. they can afford limousines. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after the law of inevitability, we start to get into the big number business. Yes, the law of truly large numbers. Okay, so there are two of the five laws which are fairly straightforward, and I think the law of inevitability is one, and, and the law of truly large numbers is also fairly straightforward. This is different from the law of large numbers, which you're taught about in, in, in college, which just says that things get closer to the average the larger the sample you take. That's really what it says. The law of truly large numbers says if you take enough opportunities you're guaranteed the most extraordinary results. So if I flip a coin um, and keep flipping it long enough, maybe millions and millions of times, I'm guaranteed to get 20 heads in a row. Or, as happened in um, uh, as has happened in roulette, 26. Um, 26 black coming up in a, row. Yeah. in a row. Yeah. And if, if you were there when that happened, Absolutely. you would say the fix is in, something is wrong with this wheel. But when you look at all the roulette wheels in the world being spun every time and day, time again, night after times, night, yeah, exactly. It becomes inevitable that That's right. you're going to get 26 yeah. blacks in a row. And the key thing there are truly large numbers of spins of these roulette wheels. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's an illustration of that law, and it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. You know, you have the Bulgarian lottery example, which <laughs> is too. amazing. <coughs> that's right. So it's, it's really amazing so, when you work out the math and you see that it's inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Sixth and tenth of September, two thousand and nine, on the sixth, certain six numbers of came up on the Bulgarian lottery, and four days later, exactly the same numbers came up, which caused a media storm around the world. In fact, the Bulgarian minister. Ordered an investigation, you know, clearly this is fraud. fraud. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but when you work uh, out the math, even yeah. in just the Bulgarian lottery case, the chances become greater than 50-50 that you'll repeat the numbers every 43 years. Exactly. Maybe not consecutively, right. but, but, but that some, some numbers will be the same. Yeah, that two, two sets of six numbers will be the same somewhere in that 43 years. And because the, the probability of getting some match is so great, you, you'd expect it to happen. You know, we realize now that, okay, it's not un so unusual given the huge number, truly large number of lotteries around the world being drawn again and again and again. And it's not just happened in Bulgaria. It's also happened in Israel. Israel, And it also happened in the Carolina Cash 5 lottery. The oh. same sort of thing happened. And I think that was consecutive draws. Wow. So, you, you know. It's you not... have the, the, the poor woman in Massachusetts. <gasps> Maureen Wilcox. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't, I'm not sure. Was she in Massachusetts or Rhode Island? It's <laughs> not clear. Yes, I did. But she bought the lottery tickets for both states. That's right. She bought the lottery and she bought the winning numbers for both states. Unfortunately for her, the winning numbers she bought in one state were for the lottery in the other state and vice versa. And, I mean, that's the really amazing thing. She had them both. Yeah. But switched yeah. to the wrong states. Now, if anyone is going to think somebody up there has got it in for me, that poor woman must have thought right. so. <laughs> but it's just chance. And, you know, you would expect that truly large numbers of opportunities for this sort of thing to happen. 
sooner or later, it's going to happen. So it's not really surprising at all. Yeah. You have the uh, the case in the book of the park ranger. Now, this is this is a little different because he's a park ranger, so he's outdoors a lot, but he's been hit by lightning seven different times. He has indeed. Yeah. At least seven. It's yeah. possible he was also hit as a as a youngster, but we're not including that in the official count. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, and this, I use him to illustrate the law of the probability lever, which basically says that if you change the conditions or circumstances a little, you can dramatically change the probabilities. So, for instance, in the US, the chance of being killed by a lightning strike is about one in three million. There are about 100 people in the US. Per year. Per year, per year, yes. So about 100 people in the US killed per year by lightning strikes, which pro rata is far fewer than you would expect if you look at the figures around the world. And the reason is because America is a safer place to live in. You, you tend to live in buildings, work in offices. There are lightning conductors down the sides of the buildings and, and, and so on. The insulation is better. Earthing is better. Um, so the circumstances have changed. Now, Roy Sullivan, this park ranger you mentioned, um, well, clearly he didn't work in an office. He worked in an environment which predisposed him, made him more vulnerable, more likely to be struck by lightning. The circumstances, the conditions had changed, and so his probability, you know. So in retrospect, looking at it, well, you, it's not at all surprising that he's been hit more than once. Seven times pushing. <laughs> well, yes, I, I, you know, you do wonder why he didn't think, hmm, this is getting a bit much, and <laughs> next time might be the last time. Maybe I should make the last time the last time and stop. Right, <laughs> get a desk job. Um, yeah, you have the other case of, um, was it Major Summerfield? Ah, yes. Hit by That's lightning right. a few times, and after he yeah. died, not from lightning, his gravestone Absolutely. was yes. hit by lightning. Yes, that's right. As if you know, God would have said, I haven't forgotten you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the probability lever where we can really increase the chance of something happening without really, without necessarily realizing we're doing it. What's another example of something like that? Another example of the law of the probability lever. Oh, I, I suppose one of the examples I, I give, there are many examples. One is um, financial crashes where people use the wrong model. Or financial mathematicians really understand this, but a lot of the calculations for simplicity are based on what's called a normal distribution, which is not appropriate. So you end up with figures saying we should should have experienced such a movement in the markets only once in a billion years, but we seem to experience them every once every ten years or twenty years, and that's because the wrong model is being used. But let me give you a, a, another example: the Titanic. The Titanic is was well known to have been thought to be unsinkable. Uh, it was unsinkable because it was a double-hull ship, and it had lots of separate compartments, 20 separate compartments, which could be separated from each other by watertight bulkheads uh, and doors. Um, and it was built such that if one or, or, indeed, one or a few more of these compartments got ruptured and flooded, it wouldn't sink. So it was unsinkable. That calculation, though, was basically based on the assumption that any one of these compartments being flooded, the probability of that, the chance of that happening was independent of any of the others being flooded. And what actually happened was that the ship was hit on the side by an iceberg, which then scraped all, all along the side and ruptured five consecutive um, compartments, which all flooded. The flooding of the compartments wasn't independent. Um, it was related. The wrong probability model was being used with, clearly in that case, 
incredibly dramatic effects on the outcome. You know, the chance of it sinking was much greater than was thought when you didn't use the right model. Based on the uh, the actual runs of that experiment, the odds of it sinking are much higher. Much higher. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. So the, those are uh, a few of the laws. What uh, what's what's another law that you discuss in the book? There's the law of inevitability, truly large numbers, the probability lever. And then the law of selection and the law of near enough. Uh, selection is very interesting, especially <laughs> from, uh, from the point of view. Many of the people who will listen to this are obviously very interested in science or are scientists. And the law of selection really comes into play in a lot of research, publication of uh, medical studies. Yes, it does. Um the law of selection manifests itself in all sorts of curious ways. I mean, one way is, is in, in science is through publication bias, where, where um, naturally uh, papers which produce exciting results with potential implications are more likely to be published. Authors want to get them out there. Editors want to have their journal to have an impact. So if you produce a paper like that, it's more likely to be accepted and published. If you produce a paper which says there was no effect, uh, editors are less likely to publish it. So this produces a natural bias in the nature of the papers which are published. And there's also something going on at a more fundamental probabilistic level. Any scientific result has got a random component. Just by chance, the patients you allocated to one group or the other group were more likely to get better or, or whatever. Um, so there's always a random component. Now, if that random component happens to push you over some sort of threshold so that it appears to have an effect, the drug or treatment or whatever it is appears to be effective, then because of the publication bias I've described, you're more likely to get it published. So amongst a lot of the papers which have appeared, which have appeared in journals, there is like to be a, an overabundance of papers which really show an effect which will then vanish when they're repeated, and it's just the selection process. Here's a, a, a point where selection and uh, regression to the mean come up. Uh, you discuss in the book the placement of speeding cameras. Oh, yes. And this was, I, I love this part. This was so fascinating. Yeah. And how public policy officials can look at numbers and have no idea what's really going on. Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. I like this example as well. Um, because at the time it wasn't very clear what, what, what was happening, how it should be analysed, but in retrospect it's very clear. And of course, that's that at the time, but in retrospect, is a key aspect of the improbability <laughs> principle in general. <laughs> but in this particular case, um, if you're investigating the effectiveness of speed cameras, what you would do is you'll clearly cite your speed cameras at accident black spots to see if they have an effect in reducing the number of accidents or the rate of accidents at those places. Right. So we have these places here in New York, you know, you go to Queens Boulevard, famous for uh, terrible traffic accidents, a lot of speeding cars. So that's a prime place where you would put a camera. Exactly. And the idea yeah. is that when the motorists know that the camera is there, they'll behave better. Exactly. That sums it up very nicely. But the fact is, of course, that accident black spots like that one, the high rate of accidents is a product of two things. First, it's perhaps a naturally dangerous place, which does encourage poor behavior, like driving behavior like this. But also, in any particular year, 
the fact that there's a higher rate of accidents will be also partly due to chance because it will fluctuate over the course of time. Sometimes it will be less, sometimes it will be high. Now, if we look back at last year and identify the places which have particularly high rates of accidents, those places, the high rate at those places will be due to a sum of two things. The natural, naturally, natural degree of dangerousness of those places plus the chart, the fact that at that particular year just happens to be a bad year. There were more accidents than normal at that year. But because it's a high rate of accidents, we're now going to put a camera there. Now, what happens next year? What happens next year? The natural dangerousness of the place hasn't changed. It's still the same corner or intersection or whatever. But the chance bit of the number of accidents there, well, it could be just, it could be low just as easily as high next year. On average, it will be lower than the high rate we saw. So next year, the rate will come down. It won't be because of the camera. It will just be because of natural fluctuation, removing that sort of chance uh, uh, part. But it will look as if putting the cameras there has improved things. When you look at the entire array of, let's say, 100 cameras, yeah. we're going to see almost inevitably we're going to see a decrease in the accidents that occurred yeah. at those 100 sites together. Exactly. So it seems that um, when people analyze the data, taking this into account, it seems, and I, I want to make this clear because I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, speed cameras are a bit controversial. There is a, a, a group of people who thinks they're just ways to raise revenue for, for the authorities. The fact is, however, <clears throat> the speed cameras do work. There is no question that they do reduce the rate of accidents, but not as much as a superficial analysis failing to take into account the law of selection and regression to the mean right. makes it look like. I forget the actual numbers, but let's say there's a 50% reduction. Maybe only 60% of the 50% exactly. is due to the camera and the other 40% is just due to That's right. fluctuation in, yeah. the, in the rate of accidents at any particular spot in any year. That's exactly yeah, right. It's really yeah. fascinating. Yeah. But of course, the, uh, the city councilmen who put that camera there are going to take credit <laughs> for the full decrease. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So the, near the end of the book, you talk about how, well, let's talk about the, the law of near enough. First. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the sort of statement of this law is, is that events which are sufficiently similar are regarded as identical. Um, and, and what this means is that um, we, we look for, as we discussed earlier, we are, we notice things which are, which appear to match or, or or which strike us as the same or whatever. We notice these coincidences, and I, I I'll just give you an example of the law of near enough. A, a couple of people, um, a man and wife, were both involved in um, train accidents which killed a number of people. Um, Bill um, uh, Shaw was involved in one in 1986, killed 13 people, I think. And then 15 years later, his wife was involved in another train accident, which also killed a number of people. And you think um, it, it, rail travel in the UK is extremely safe. Uh, if you look at the figures, it's very, very low fatality rates. So they were very unfortunate. What a coincidence that a husband and wife should both be involved in fatal, quite serious train uh, crashes. Um, but then you think it wasn't Bill being involved in both. It was Bill and Ginny, his wife. Um, and they weren't at the same time. They were 15 years apart. We'd also have regarded it a coincidence if it had been 20 or maybe 30 years apart. And if it hadn't been Bill and his wife, but Bill and his cousin or a brother or 
somebody with the same name, for instance. Or so what we're doing here is enlarging the scope of things which we would nevertheless have said, wow, what a coincidence. Um, and if you do that sufficiently, of course, sooner or later, you end up with something which is quite likely, not so improbable at all. There are an infinitude of things that go on every day that we don't pay any attention to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just off the top of my head, the number of strokes I use when shaving my face. Yeah. Now that's going to fluctuate around some mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But... If I were to count them up exactly, I would find, isn't this amazing? I used exactly the same number on, you know, January 14th as I did seven years later on January 14th. (laughs) And it would look like something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, I sometimes say that, you know, we go through the world surrounded by events. There's a buzzing, boiling confusion of, countless trillions, an infinitely large number of things going on all the time. But when two happen to come together in some way, because the same numbers come up, then we notice and we say, what a coincidence. Um, But if you take all these things into account, then you would expect these things to happen. That's the improbability principle. I'll give you, I I realize you're not a big baseball fan (laughs) coming from the other side of the Atlantic, but um, there's something in American baseball called a perfect game when the pitcher... Uh, gives up no base runners at all. So a Yankee pitcher did this in 1956 in the World Series. Then in 1998, a Yankee pitcher did it in the regular season. And it turned out that they had both attended the same high school yes, in yeah. San Diego. Yeah. yeah so yeah. naturally, everybody went crazy. <laughs> this is unbelievable. How could they have gone to the same high school? Yeah. And I was saying to people, but if you lay out their biographies and go through them, with a fine-tooth comb, you will find, you know, they both had the same wedding anniversary. Something like that is going to come up. Yes, that's right. And there are going to be countless things that they differ in. (laughs) But but you don't care about those. You only care about the high school or the things that they happen to match on. Right, exactly. (laughs) Like one had a terrific career over a 25-year span, and the other one really just had that one moment of greatness. But anyway, so near the end of the book, you talk about how understanding these laws can actually help you in your day-to-day life. Yeah, I mean, the book is really intended to be a book about, as it were, the nature of the universe, about science. But um, I thought it was also useful to actually then turn things around and say, well, how can we uh, apply these things in our everyday life? And I talk about things which I think will be familiar to people who know statistics or some statistics, although they may not have thought of them in these particular sorts of ways, for instance. So, for instance, the law of likelihood, where you balance the chance of getting uh, an observed phenomenon in the world or a set of data or, or incident or something under two possible explanations. Is it very unlikely under this one and very likely under this one? And then you decide which one you prefer. And you can, you, so you're balancing improbabilities or probabilities in, in that sort of example. And there are various other sort of ways I try to illustrate how they could be used. What what was the case in the book about, um, it might have been Pascal talking about the lesser of the two miracles? No, that's absolutely right. And that's, an ex- that's a, a very early example of this likelihood principle. You, you look at the evidence and you say, well, what's the chance of, uh, what's the, you know, a man comes to you and said, 
I have just seen something amazing. I've seen someone float into the air, do a loop-the-loop, and then fly off into the distance. And you say, you say to yourself, well, one explanation is he saw this happen. Another explanation is he's been drinking. Right. <laughs> now, which do you think is the most, you know, most likely to have led to that result? That's really what he's talking about. Balancing probabilities, balancing improbabilities. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a parable. Uh, I think it's a parable. And I think it's St. Francis, um, who was considered to be so earnest that the other monks would even make fun of him, how uh, yeah. how honest and, and simple he was. And um, one of the monks, one of the other monks came up to him and said, Francis, you have to come look out the window. There's a, there's a mule and he's flying. <laughs> and so St. Francis runs to the window and he looks out. And of course, there is no flying mule. And and the monk starts to laugh at him, and uh, Saint Francis says, yeah, "The monk says, you, you you actually ran to the window to see. You thought a mule could fly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he said, I believed a mule could fly before I believed that a monk could lie.' Ah, that's tremendous. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed this book. There's there's so much fun stuff in it, even if you're not a fan of reading about people getting hit by lightning." <laughs> And uh, I think it can only help people make somewhat better sense of the the swirling morass of <laughs> things that go on in their day to day lives. Did you enjoy writing it? Oh, it was tremendous fun. Yes, yeah. it's people sometimes ask me how long it takes to write a book, and I, I say there are two answers. One is twenty years, right. sort of collecting ideas, evidence, formulating it in your mind, and the other is six months, just sitting down and actually putting pen to paper, sort yeah. of thing. So two answers. I think this one took about ten years of of, of accumulating the, the the sort of ideas and evidence, and it was driven by, uh, you know, probability really is intriguing and often counterintuitive. It's just fascinating stuff, uh, and people often find it very difficult to contend with the sort of with uncertainty, which in some sense is another. Uh, name for probability mm -hmm. um, so it's fascinating stuff which does pervade life it affects us all so yeah it's great fun to write and you're a professor emeritus uh, professional statistician right. you know you're you're immersed and well versed in all this information but in the course of writing it did you learn anything new ah, i learned all sorts of new things yes um i certainly got a much better grasp of the ideas behind it because i had to uh, the point about writing science writing in general, writing scientific papers, or even a book, a sort of popular book like this, is that you, you're forced to make sure your ideas are clear. It's very easy when you're just thinking about things to think, oh, I've got that, that's no problem. But putting it down on paper, explaining it to some, they say the best way to learn something is to teach it. And this is rather like that. So I learned all sorts of new things. Remember the Audible special offer you heard about at the beginning of this episode? You can take advantage of it to get the full, unabridged, 8-hour and 32-minute recording of David J. Hand's The Improbability Principle, Why Coincidences, Miracles, and Rare Events Happen Every Day. Just go to audible.com slash cyan. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the collection of Scientific American eBooks. The latest volume in the series is called Designing the Urban Future, Smart Cities. All the eBooks are less than $4. They're at books.scientificamerican.com slash SA 
ebooks. Or just go to the Scientific American website homepage and look around till you find them. They're on the right side of the page. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.